For you guys that don't know, that was Mumford and Sons. And so we've been covering songs all the last five or six weeks. And a lot of those songs have been famous songs, but that was selfish because that's one of my favorite songs from the folk band Mumford and Sons. And if you don't listen to Mumford and Sons, you should. So anyway, uh, so a great song. And so we are wrapping up this series mixtape and we're going to do it again next year. And so we're super excited. We're already planning songs to do uh, next time we do this series. Uh, Jill, I want to remind you guys, we have care packages uh, for soldiers that we're doing out there in the lobby. So stop by the table um, and see that. And those are due next week, I think they said, but they don't really tell me all the information all the time. So just next week. All right. So uh, we're so glad you guys are here today uh, with us. And so in this series, we've been taking a look at some of the most famous songs that have been written in the past 20, 30 years. Uh, and then, like I said, today's song is selfish because I just love Mumford and Sons. And so that song to me, when I first heard it about 10 years ago, um, and when I listened to what Marcus Mumford, who's the leader of Mumford and Sons, he said, it's a song about someone who's in need of change. It's a song about someone who wants to be awakened to the idea of a new possibility, about learning about themselves and the life they have built until this point, and the cry for their soul is to be awakened to new possibility. And I think that that is where we should all be, the idea to believe that there is a new possibility out there for us, a new tomorrow, a better tomorrow. And so with that in mind, I want to give you all a subtle reminder, and we've talked about this before. Um, this is your life, and, and this is it. Like, this is, this is it. And so congratulations, you lived. And so this is it. And, and so you are who you are, and this is where you are. And for some of us, when we hear that, it's a little unsettling. Um, I turned 40 last year, and, and so I don't know why that was a big deal in my mind to turn 40. Uh, to be honest with you, I still feel like a kid. I just have adult responsibilities now. I don't know if you guys ever felt like that. And I keep wondering, like, one day I'm going to wake up and feel like an adult, um, and, and I don't always do that. But, but it is this reality is that this is my life, and at 40 years old, this is what it is. And this is the marriage that you have. These are the relationships you have. This is your family that you've built. And so this is who you are. But along with that also comes, these are the hangups in your life. These are the struggles that you have. These are successes you've had. These are the victories you've had. And up until this point, these are the failures that you've had. This is it, and everything that comes with it. And I remind people of that from time to time, and I have to remind myself of that from time to time, because here's what I've learned. It does no one, especially you, to pretend like this is not your life. You are not going to be somebody else. This is it. And sometimes we need to have these sobering moments where we just kind of realize and own up to this is who we are. Now, when we think about that, for some of us, it's like, okay, yeah, I get it. Like, I've lived a good life, and, and I, I feel comfortable with where I've gotten to at this point. But for some of us, when we think about that and really think about it, um, it becomes a little unsettling. And the reason it becomes unsettling is because for some of us, we have these moments where, regardless of what age you are in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, it becomes this moment of realizing that you thought you'd be further along than you are. You thought it'd be different then maybe you are. There's this great saying that, that I read years ago where this guy was talking about, you know, when I was in my 20s, I, I thought I'd get to it in my 30s. When I was in my 30s, I thought I'd do it in my 40s. When I was in my 40s, I'd get to it in my 50s. And all of a sudden now you wake up and you're 60 years old and you're like, what happened, right? 
What happened? How did you get here? What steps did you take? What paths did you venture down? And, and we remind people this all the time, and, and I do this, that you know, life is just a series of choices that you make, or maybe it's choices that you felt were forced upon you, or decisions that, that you made yourself, or decisions that you felt were forced upon you. And we always tell people when you have this realization of this is where you are and this is your life, you know, we often say it's not always the steps you've taken to this point, it's the next step that's the most important. And especially if you kind of find yourself in this unsettling or when someone reminds you that this is your life, you kind of get down about it a little bit. But this is who we are. But we also want to believe in a better tomorrow and a better future. There's this great section of scripture that Paul talks about in Romans 7. And if you haven't read it, you should read it. And in this chapter, he kind of addresses this idea that some of us feel where it's like when we look at our life, what we do is we realize that, you know, we keep kind of doing the same thing over and over again. And, you know, this, the quote is you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, right? But it, but it doesn't happen. And so we do the same thing over and over again. And Paul even kind of doubles down. And he says, and the problem with this sometimes is we know what we want to do, and yet we don't do it. And, and then the things that, that we, you know, we shouldn't do seem to be like the things that we keep repeating in our life. And sometimes some of these choices we make, we know what we should do, but then we do this. For, for example, just real life. Um, have you ever been in that moment when you're in a relationship, so with your spouse or your, your kids or your coworker or friend, and, and like you're in an argument, we'll pretend like we argue with our spouses for a minute. And so you're in this moment where you're arguing and it's kind of getting heated. You ever, like, you ever said something, and as you're about to say it, you're like, I'm probably going to have to apologize for this later, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it because it seems like the right, you ever done that? Or you ever had that moment where you're just like, you know, I know I shouldn't say this, but, you know, and it's like this thing we keep doing over and over again. For some of us, it's this idea of like, we know what's going to happen when we go there. We know what's going to happen when we're around that person. And yet we seem to continue to do this same pattern over and over again. And this is your life. Those are the choices that you've made. For, for some of us, when we think about that this is our life, there's this feeling that we're stuck. And, and the worst feeling in the world is to kind of feel like you're stuck. Like, okay, this is, this is just what it is. And it's this awful feeling to feel like you're in this place where you're just there. And it just is going to be what it is. And some of us, you know, I think what happens is when we think back at our life, what we also want to do is we want to blame people for why we got to where we were. We very rarely want to take blame for ourselves. And so we say, okay, well, this is where I am. But what you have to know is that this happened and this happened and this happened. And, and that's true. Those things happen. And there's things that have happened to people in this room that nobody would sign up for. And there's losses that we've had and people that we've lost along the way. And, and I understand that. But I think sometimes what happens is when we get to these ideas of this is who we are, we want to blame. And I think sometimes if we're honest, what we have to realize is eventually we get to a point where we have to go, does it really even matter whose fault it is? Like it just is. This is just where we are. And because of what I do, I've had a front row seat of people who kind of find themselves in these moments in life where they're like, you know, something has to change. Something has to give because I can't let it continue just be this over and over again. Now, I say all that to set up what we're going to talk about today because here's what I want for you because I want it for me 
And, and this is honestly, when people ask me why I do what I do for a living, because I think it's crazy that I do what I do, and I understand that. Um, here, here's why I do this. I want you to believe that there is a better future possible. And I want you to believe that a better tomorrow can exist. But those things don't often happen by accident. Sometimes it comes to this moment where it's a choice that we have to make, or it's an invitation that's offered to us. Because the reality is if we just keep doing things the way we've always done it, especially in those seasons where we don't feel like we're doing things or we feel like life is passing us by or we feel stuck, sometimes change happens when, when we realize that we've been living a certain way or doing things and mistakes were made and what we realize is what we were doing just isn't working. And so it's like that moment where you have to stop and go, okay, well, I, I don't think this is working. Now, I've got some really bad news for you, and you guys are not going to like this, but um, so what I've learned about myself, so I'll speak to myself, but I'm pretty sure it's true of you too. Um, what I've learned is this. There's one common denominator in every bad choice I've ever made. Do you know what that common denominator is? It's you and it's me. We have participated in every bad decision that we've ever made. Congratulations. And here's why I think that's important. is because a lot of times those were choices that we made. And, and I think it's important sometimes to step back and to think about that and realize, okay, I was a part of that choice. I was a part of that decision. But to also realize that life has enough unavoidable pain. Why would we continue to make choices and head in directions that are going to cause even more pain and more heartache in our life. And just as you're the one that's kind of the mastermind sometimes behind some of the choices in the life that you are living, the reality is you're also the one that gets to choose whether it's going to stop being that way and whether you're going to believe and start to live as if a better future is possible. To live as if your soul can be awakened to something new. Now, sometimes for that to happen, it takes a catalyst. It takes a moment in time. Sometimes it, it takes this moment, this invitation, this moment in time. And sometimes for some of us, we say stuff like, well, somebody had to hit rock bottom. You ever, ever use that? Like, I don't know where that phrase came from, but we say they have to hit rock bottom before they're going to change. Or for some people, it, it's got to be like this amazing experience, this eye-opening experience. But sometimes maybe it's as simple as an invitation for someone to believe that your tomorrow can be better and for them to convince you to believe it yourself. So I want to walk us through a couple of stories in the Bible, a couple moments in the Bible where we see this and see how we might see ourselves in these stories and how we can relate to these stories. So the first one takes place in Luke chapter 5, and I'm going to paraphrase part of it, but I'm going to give you some backstory. So um, in this story, Jesus is walking around and he started his ministry here on earth. Now, a very important detail in this story is Jesus is not Jesus yet. And what I mean by that is he's Jesus, but he's not Jesus. Okay, so he's not like Jesus, you know, like the Southern Baptist thing. Like he's not like that Jesus yet, okay? He's just Jesus. He, he's just a carpenter from a region that some people kind of think is a rabbi and he's starting to get a reputation. But to be honest with you, and we've talked about this before, when Jesus dies, like he's barely a blip on the radar. Like most people in the world doesn't even know he's existed, and so he's going from town to town. He's doing this ministry. He never really travels outside of a very kind of small region. And so in this story, he goes to this town. 
Now, when he goes to this town, he's going to have this encounter with this guy. So a little backstory on this guy. So this guy's got a job that he's chosen. Again, it's a choice that he's made. And his job is not a very favorable job. So to understand the context of this, it, all the stories we see in the Bible take place under the rule of Rome. Okay? If you've never studied Rome, what you have to understand is they basically ruled the world for a pretty long period of time. And when I say ruled the world, they ruled the world. And they didn't rule the world by being nice and giving puppies to everybody. They ruled it by taking over and conquering everybody and striking fear in the hearts of everybody to where everybody submitted. And the other side of the story is even if you wanted to go against Rome, you couldn't go against Rome. In fact, the most famous kind of rebellion against Rome takes place about 70 years before Jesus. It's called the Rebellion of Maccabees. It lasts for a short period of time. And then one day the emperor's like, you know what, enough of this. They send people in. It's over in a day. It's not even like a war. It's like, oh, enough of that. We're done with that. You've never even heard of Maccabees unless you studied Jewish history, but he was like this legend at the time. So Rome rules the world. The way they rule the world is they have a mighty, massive military. Now, the problem with having a mighty, massive military and trying to rule the world is it costs a lot of money. And so in order to pay for the military, what they do is they do what we do today. They tax people. Because they have to have this infrastructure. You've heard of like Roman roads. You have to have all this stuff. But one of the biggest reasons they tax people is to pay for their ever-expanding empire. And the way you have an ever-expanding empire is you have a really, really strong military that no one can stand against. And it costs a lot of money. So they tax people, right? Now, what you have to understand about taxing people in that day, and I have my feelings about taxes, and I'm sure you do about like the IRS. And just go ahead and tell you, if you work for the IRS... We don't like you, and this story, um, it's going to um, further that narrative. But, um, you know, in, in their world, tax collectors were a little different. And so what they realized is that when they go and they take over a region, they don't know, because they're foreigners, they don't know who really has money and who doesn't. They don't know all the behind-the-scenes trade routes and all the paths you can take to get from one side of the town to another side of the town and all the things. And so what they realize is if we're going to maximize the amount of taxes and make sure we're actually getting these taxes, what we have to do is we need to find local people who knows everybody in the region and knows everybody in the village because they're going to be the ones that's going to know where the money really is. And so what they started doing is where they started hiring local people to work for the mighty military oppressive system that was Rome. So, so imagine, for example, that tomorrow our country got overtaken and all of a sudden they've got to have these people come in and tax us so they can pay for their military, not ours, and your neighbor decides in order to make a couple of extra bucks, because that's what they could do, that they are going to submit to that foreign government and now start taxing you because they know where you live and what you own and all this stuff. You would not like that person very much, right? In fact, you would consider that person a traitor. You would consider that person someone that's betrayed you. And the other kind of secret rule about tax collectors was Rome said, okay, we need this much. And it, it, you know, there was inflation depending on what seasons of war they were in and all these things and the infrastructure they had to build. So there were times where taxes were really high. And sometimes it wasn't so terrible. But what tax collectors would do is they'd say, okay, let's say Rome is taxing you at 30%. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to take 40% and we're going to keep that extra 10% for ourselves. And so now they're getting wealthy off of the backs of Rome and off of your hard-earned money. 
when you read the Bible, what you'll see is that there's categories. And so when Jesus talks about this, he says, there were sinners, and then way down here were tax collectors. They were worse than the sinners. In fact, sinners, as you'll see in the stories, don't even go to tax collectors' parties. They're like, those guys are too bad for us, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of scene. So this guy is a tax collector. He has sold out his faith, his family, his village, his region. I mean, he is the worst of the worst. Now, what you also have to know, and I've met people like this, and we all know people that we think are bad people, like those people. First of all, none of us are as good as we think. But second of all, when we think about bad people, what you have to understand is guilt and shame does not elude anyone. And so even people that make really terrible choices and do really bad things, like, like there's just something built within us that we sometimes feel, even if we never admit it, the kind of this guilt and the shame. And there's this kind of feeling that, okay, maybe this isn't exactly the right thing to do. And so here's this guy, and he, he gets up one day, and he goes to his tax collector booth, and he's sitting there. And all of a sudden, this kind of crowd starts to form around him, and, and this guy walks up. And, and we don't know like, how much this guy knows about Jesus or anything like that, but here's what we do know. We know that he's sitting there at his tax collector booth, and, and now we know, obviously, kind of the backstory that he's a hated man. Nobody likes this guy. And in fact, when they threw parties, the only people that go to those parties are tax collectors because nobody else wants to be seen with these people. And so listen to these, these details. In Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple. Now, <clears throat> I, I've been a part of like motivational speeches and like sermons where it's like, man, this is unreal. Of course I'm going to follow Jesus. Like that was unreal what this person just said. Not the, not the best sermon that Jesus just gave there. You know, follow me and be my disciple. That's it. And Levi gets up, left everything, and followed him. Now, we often read Bible stories and we just take them for their face value. But there's a couple questions I think we should ask. First of all, who does this? Like, for example, like I know we should all follow Jesus and we talk about you should give everything to Jesus. But if any of you tomorrow, like, I'm going to follow Jesus, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to quit my job, I'm going to leave my family, I'm going to leave my house, I'm going to leave my friends, we would be concerned, right? In fact, you would be like, what cult have you joined, right? That's what we think about this person. So, so here's Levi. So the first question is, who actually does this? But the deeper question is this, how bad does it have to be? that the first person to come along and offer you something new and you're like, I'll take it. Yep, sign me up. How bad does it have to be where you have this moment where someone gives this simple invitation? Again, Jesus is not Jesus as we know him yet. And you jump at it because in your mind, in your heart, you're thinking anything has to be better than this. I mean, how bad does it have to be? And here's the question. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to that moment where you're thinking there's got to be something better than this? And what we see is that Levi, he does, he follows Jesus and he becomes a follower of Christ and, and he becomes this person that actually becomes, you know, close to Jesus. And, and, and here's what I think when I think about this story, why is it important for you and for me? That morning when Levi woke up 
And he got up out of his bed, this probably pretty nice bed because he's making some money off of the people around him. And, and he's walking to work and people are booing and hissing at him, you know, and all that stuff. And when, when he woke up that morning and he ate his breakfast, and I don't know if they brushed their teeth, but I just think it's gross. So we'll say he brushed his teeth. And so he brushes his teeth and he gets up and he goes to his booth. Do you think that he had any concept of what was about to happen? The answer is no. He just thought it was going to be another day, another moment, another day where everybody hates him when he wakes up and everybody hates him when he goes to bed. Maybe another day where he feels this guilt and this shame because of what he's done, but at this point he's been doing it for so long, like what other choice does he have? And he probably has no idea that his life is going to be changed forever because of this catalyst of someone offering him an invitation into a better tomorrow and a better future. Now, Levi is an interesting kind of story because it's kind of this grand story of a person that's at rock bottom or whatever words you want to use, and an invitation is given to him, and he takes it, and he runs with it. In fact, you don't know Levi as Levi. You would refer to him as Matthew. So is in Matthew like the guy that wrote the gospel, Matthew? Is in the guy that penned the gospel that 2,000 years later is in your B-I-B-L-E that you get to read? The billions of Christians would open up the book, the story that this guy writes about Jesus and his experiences with him. The reality is Levi had a choice that day. He could stay where he was. And he could stay stuck in this life that he had created for himself, or he had a choice to get up and to move in a different direction. He had a choice, and you have a choice. Now, I realize that it may not always feel like you have a choice, but you do. And the other thing is, I'm not saying that the choice to get up and to go in a new direction is always going to be easy. I'm sure that Levi had many obstacles to overcome. I'm sure there's many people that he had to make rights with that he had wronged. He had to make peace with people. He even had to make peace with himself. And let's be honest, sometimes that's the hardest person to make peace with. But he reached a point where something had to give. And the question is, how long had he been searching for that? How long had he been longing for something new? And the question for you and for me is, how long have you been looking for something new? How how long have you been longing for something to change? I tell people in in counseling all the time, I'm probably the worst counselor ever, especially when I tell you this, but I always tell people, you know, when we're talking and we're getting to some stuff, you know, sometimes I'll just stop people and I'll say, you know, you don't have, you don't have to live like that. And they're like, what? I was like, "You, you don't have to, you don't have to keep going back there. You don't have to keep doing that. You really don't have to. And then they'll tell me about like, you know, it's been so long and this is who they are. And sometimes I'll stop people. And this is the part where I'm probably a bad counselor. And, and I'll say, okay, so I, I realize that this is, and I, I do, I realize this is a big deal. And I realize this is something that you're wrestling with and struggling with it. But, but, but the reality is, okay, how long are you going to let that control you? How long are you going to let that thing or that person or that experience dictate your future? And I'll say, okay, let's just, let's just go ahead and pull out a calendar. Like, is June 6, 2026 work for you? You know, like how long, you know, and they usually laugh and, you know, but how long? Like, how long are you going to let this continue when the reality is, is that change is possible? And sometimes what happens is some of us, 
The reality is we've been there so long, we can't imagine anything better. Which leads me to my second encounter with Jesus. In John chapter 5, we see this story. And, and in this story, what we have to understand is there's this pool in this region called Bethsaida. And in this region, the belief is that there's this pool that's there. And, and every once in a while, the water starts to bubble. And what they believed was that an angel or a spirit would come down and kind of dip in this pool. And if you were the first person to get into this pool after these bubbles start to form and the spirit kind of empowers this water, then you could be healed. And, and so like they believed that. And so all these people would go to this pool every day and set by it because they wanted to be better. They wanted to be healed. And, and, and it's like, I know that for some of us, like we hear stories like that and we're like, well, that sounds crazy, right? That someone would, would go and they would set by this pool believing that it could heal them. And I just want to remind you that we're not that far from that. Remember essential oils? Remember that? You know, all you people try, yeah, okay. So we believe some pretty crazy stuff too, just so you know. And if you sell those, I'm not interested, but I do apologize. So um, the reality is, is that we've always, as human beings, kind of believed these things. And they believed it. And so we see this scene where Jesus, again, not the big Jesus that we think of when we think of Jesus, but he gets there and he goes to this pool and he gets drawn to this one guy. And we don't really know exactly the reason why he gets drawn to this guy other than maybe the detail we're about to see. And it says in John chapter 5, verse 5, he says, one of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. Now, we read that, but when you read it in the original Greek, not only had he been sick for 38, days, 38 years, it kind of lends itself to believe he's been waiting there. I just turned 40, like I said earlier. So basically, my entire life, this guy has been waiting for this kind of miraculous thing to happen so that he can be healed. And we don't know his sickness. We don't know exactly what it is. We do know that whatever his sickness is, it's caused him not to be able to get up and to walk, and as we'll see here in a second... And so think about that. Think about being in the same place. Talk about stuck. Think about being there for 38 years. And so Jesus, he, he walks up to him and it says in verse six, when Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him the most insensitive question you could ask someone that's been there for 38 years. Would you like to get better? Would you like to get well? I mean, this seems so insensitive, right? Like, the guy's like, no, I'm good. You know, like, what, what does Jesus expect this response to be? Now, interesting word there in, in the Greek, it says, well, it's actually the word called hugias. And hugias is a word that's used for health, but it's also a word that's used in math whenever you're rounding up to a whole number. And so it's this kind of word that it's kind of interesting, but the way it's used, it's like this idea of like, would you like to be, because they believe whole numbers were complete numbers. Would you like to be complete? Which is a great question, right? Because I think what happens with some of us is when it comes to Jesus, we want to give Jesus some parts of our life and then some parts we don't want him knowing so much about. And then like we want some things to get better, but then there's some things we just want to still be able to control a little bit. And so Jesus is like, well, that's not really the invitation. The invitation is, would you like to be healthy? Would you like to be whole? And here's the guy's response. <clears throat> I can't. I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. 
Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Did you ever watch Winnie the Pooh? Kind of reminds me of Eeyore, right? Remember Eeyore? Like, I can't. It's always bad. It's always down. I can't. Now, let me press on this a little bit. And in and, and, and the sake of this guy, who obviously is going through a lot, and I don't think that Jesus is downplaying that and don't think that I'm downplaying the seriousness of where he's at. But I do want to press on his response a little bit. Because I think this is where some of us are at, right? There's always an excuse, isn't there? There's always an excuse why you can't get better. There's always an excuse as to why you can't do that. There's always an excuse. When we think about do you want to be whole, when we think about do you want to be awakened to a new possibility, a new tomorrow, when we think about the idea of do you actually want to change, well, I think a lot of us like the idea of change, but there's always an excuse as to why we can't change. And maybe some of those excuses are this, and these are real, like, well, you don't know what happened to me. You don't know what happened to me to kind of lead to this viewpoint that I have. Or maybe, you know what, I can't because you don't understand the trauma that I experienced. You're right. Or maybe it's this, you don't know how I was raised and you don't know what my parents said to me. Did you know that most of the trauma that most of us face and most of our identities come from the things that shaped us when we were kids? And even still today, it just plays out if we don't do something about it, even to some of the choices we make as adults. And so you just don't understand. Or, or it's like this, well, I've tried to change, but the problem is it was really hard. Or I've tried to change, but things didn't go well. Or let's be honest, for some of us, we say we want to change, but we don't really. We just do it because we feel like we're supposed to. Or maybe for some of us, we've grown comfortable with who we are. And we realize that it's a little off and it's not maybe the way it's supposed to be and it's not the best future or possibility. But in some ways, it's just kind of become our identity. I mean, laying there for 38 years, I mean, this is this, is this guy. This is who he is. This is how people know him. And so maybe for some of us, the reason we don't want to change is because it's kind of become who we are. Can I say the real bad thing? For some of us, the reason we don't want to change and the reason we don't change is because we kind of like being the victim, don't we? It's a story to tell. It, it's that moment when everybody comes together and says, poor you. And we kind of like it. And so Jesus, he, he looks at this guy and he realizes, okay, you know, do you want to be better? And I can't prove this but I see it over and over again, kind of in the pattern we see in Scripture, and especially in this moment. And, and here's the deal. I, I think all of that's valid. And I think that a lot of us could give a lot of reasons as to why we are the way that we are, and we could give a lot of excuses, and we could, we could, we could I mean, you give me enough time, I'll make you feel so sorry for me and the poor life that I've had. And I think sometimes what Jesus does is he's, he sits there and he listens and he shakes his head and he says, are you finished yet? Are you done? Because Jesus didn't ask him for excuses. He said, do you want to be better? Listen to Jesus' response. It's this quick. 
stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. I've heard your excuses. I get it. But what I want for you to do is to stand up, to pick up your mat, and walk. Maybe for some of us, the problem is we've gotten to the point where we can't imagine a better future. And so we just push it off. When it's actually maybe possible for some of us just to stand up, to pick up our mat, and walk. Now, the pushback on everything I just said is this. Well, well, Jeremy, you don't understand. So like those are Bible stories. And so like Jesus was there and then it like became really easy and like all of this stuff. Okay. And, and so we say, well, these are Bible stories. So they have to end with this like little happy ending and all this stuff because we, we don't actually read the Bible and realize it actually was really hard for these people. But, but so first of all, so let's talk about Matthew. Do you think it was really easy for Matthew to walk away from all that money? Do you think it was really easy for Matthew to realize when he got up from that booth that now he's got to follow Jesus and it means he's going to have to make amends with all of these people that he's hurt? Do you think for this lame man, I mean, think about this. I mean, forever now, I mean, like his identity has been changed. I mean, do you think that that was easy? Do you think that there wasn't challenges and obstacles? In fact, in the lame man story, we don't even get through the rest of the chapter before the religious leaders start attacking him. Do you think it was just always easy for these people? Do you think, here's the thing, do you think there weren't relapses in Levi, Matthew? Where he's like, man, I remember that life. The problem is those just aren't recorded in the Bible, are they? But there are moments in everybody's life when they decide they're going to change, their souls awaken to something, they believe in a new future and a new possibility, and then life happens and it gets hard. But I think what these people would tell you is that what Jesus has offered them with the new possibility, the new future, it's way better than anything they walked away from. We actually do believe around here that Jesus changes things. We do. And we believe that regardless of who you are and what mess you walked in in, and here's the thing, some of you I know pretty well, and some of you, just let me see your Facebook, Um, you walked in with a mess, didn't you? But Jesus loves you. And what's better for you? The other belief that we have is nobody is too far gone for him. I think that's the beauty of the story of Levi. You think in the first century world, the worst of the worst, they would have been a tax collector. And here Jesus is, and Jesus not only invites him to follow him, but invites him into his circle. We believe that Jesus changes things. It changes people. It changes families. It changes communities. It can change culture. One of the most important things that Paul writes is something that we all have to come familiar with if we're going to follow Jesus. And it's his beautiful writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but it's super simple. And here's what he says. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. The old has gone. The new is here. For some of us, here's the problem. Those of us in this room have been Christians for a really long time. We know that. The problem is we haven't really let go of the old, have we? And for some of us, we've never really believed that a new is actually here. But this is the promise of Jesus. And maybe we just need to remind ourselves every once in a while of the new possibility. I mean, let's be honest. Do you you believe, because I do, that there were moments in Matthew's life where he had to reach way back and he had to take himself back to that moment 
at that table on that day when Jesus walked up to him and everything changed. He had to remember. And for some of us in this room, we need to remember. We need to remember when that good news actually really became good news to us. We need to remember that there is a new and better tomorrow. And there is a new future possibility. And it's all been made possible through Jesus. For others in this room, here's what's going to happen today. We have Baptism Sunday every once in a while. Nobody might get baptized. That's okay. We need to drain the tank every once in a while anyway. So here's the deal. Um, If you're interested in being baptized, we would love to baptize you. And here's all baptism is. Baptism is an expression of what God is doing already in your heart and in your life. It's an expression. It's a public declaration. It's the buying into the fact that the old is gone and the new has come. And you have an opportunity today if you've never been baptized. We have clothes. We have towels. We have everything you need to experience that, to make a public declaration of, you know what? I've come to this point. I've hit a place. I'm stuck. I want a new future, a new possibility. And we believe that you can walk into that. It's not the steps you've taken. It's the next one that's most important. And so that opportunity is for a day or any week that you want that. But here's what I want to say to everybody in the room, whether you've been a Christian, you're not a Christian, or whether you think this whole thing is crazy. I get it. Here's what I want to say. We actually believe that God loves you. And when I say that, I want you to hear, I don't believe that God loves some future version of you. He loves you. So much that he came to give you an invitation. An invitation to come and follow. An invitation to pick up your mat and to walk into a new possibility and a new future. We believe Jesus is saving us. He's saving us from our sins, from our mistakes, from our pride, from our cynicism and despair, that we believe he came to save the brokenness we see in the world, but also the brokenness we see in our own souls. To awaken us to a new future, a new hope, and a possibility. And so my hope for you is that you believe that, that you hold on to that, and that you walk in that. Let's pray.